Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and you are listening to Keeping the Faith. On this podcast, you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Keeping the Faith is brought to you without ads or commercial interruption of any kind, except for this one invitation. I have friends who are inspired by what they hear from Keeping the Faith, and those friends support my work. But you can support this podcast as well by buying me a coffee. Buy Me a Coffee is a tiny little link where you can throw a few bucks into my tip jar and keep me busy behind the counter serving up the best episodes I have to offer. Simply go to buymeacoffee.com slash McBrayer, and you can easily and securely donate to the cause. You can also go to my website, RonnieMcBrayer.org, and click on Podcast. You will find several ways to lend a hand, and you can also choose your favorite listening platform, be it Apple, Podbean, or Spotify, so that you will never miss a single life-changing, day-making, death-defying episode. Thank you for being a regular listener. I sat down this week and began thinking about, I guess, the countless musical stories about musicians, songwriters, and their songs that I have brought into these talks over the years, and they have been legion. I can't remember them all, their stories and their journeys, their own spiritual paths are as diverse as their music, but I want to add one more story to this pantheon today, a story not quite like all the others. This story is about Robert Johnson, a bluesman born in Hazelhurst, Mississippi in 1911. Robert Johnson, the best we can tell, began playing guitar and harmonica as a young boy when his mother moved to Memphis, Tennessee. He spent his early years bouncing around that part of the world, sometimes in Mississippi, sometimes in Arkansas, sometimes in Tennessee. By the time he was a young man, he was an accomplished harmonica player, but a notoriously bad guitar player. All of his contemporaries at the time testified to this fact that he was just awful. Then, miraculously, mysteriously, overnight, Robert Johnson became an acoustic guitar master and singer, recording two albums in the 1930s, including that song we just sang, Crossroad Blues, something unheard of for a young, undiscovered black man at the time. But after he suddenly and shockingly became proficient at guitar, everything else seemed to go wrong for young Robert. He got married, but his wife died in childbirth. He got married again. She died shortly after the honeymoon. He took to the road a traveling, busking music man, but never could settle anywhere. Chicago, St. Louis, New Orleans, Memphis. He died at 27 years of age, almost like a ghost. As no cause of death was ever given, no sickness previously was reported, and no autopsy was ever performed. 
Some people say that he was murdered, poisoned even. There are historical researchers absolutely convinced of this. Others say it was complications from syphilis. For he had a weakness, quote, for whiskey and women. Some think it was a genetic disorder of some type. There is no agreement, not even where the man is buried. You can go to Mississippi today and there are three different markers marking the final resting place of Robert Johnson. So what went wrong? Well, nothing medical if you ask the locals. Struggling to become a great guitar player, Johnson had been practicing late at night in graveyards for the peace and the quiet and the stillness, supposedly. One night, he felt a compulsion to walk out to a local crossroads, likely in Clarksdale, Mississippi, about 80 miles south of Memphis. And there he met a large black man towering over the much smaller guitar player. But this was no mere man. It was the devil. The devil took Johnson's guitar, as the legend goes, tuned it, played a couple songs on it, and handed it back And the mythology is that Robert Johnson in that moment became the master he would be remembered for, but it was a Faustian deal that cost him his soul. In musical circles, the infamous Faustian deal with the devil is legendary. You cash out your soul for talent and success. And at first blush, the deal is good up to about the age of 27. That's when musical masters perish, you know. Jimi Hendrix. Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, Kurt Cobain, Brian Johnson, Amy Winehouse, Robert Johnson. All dead at 27. But there's nothing to it, really. They say that the most dangerous age for a musician is actually 56. Deal or no deal with the devil. But what about Robert Johnson and Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and and these others? Well, I don't know if they made a deal with the devil or not, but I do know that you can't traipsy all over Mississippi courting a hundred different mistresses and drinking a half gallon of white liquor every night and it not catch up with you fairly quickly. You can't take 20 times the dose of sleeping barbiturates with a bottle of wine and expect to wake up the next day, Mr. Hendricks. You can't keep putting that needle in your arm and not reap the tragic, destructive, heart-wrenching consequences. Often what we might call a deal with the devil is our own stubbornness. And sometimes it's our own unbridled desires. And once that desire is released, it is so very difficult to stop the natural cataclysmic result. Now you are well, so stop sinning, or something even worse may happen to you. Jesus tells a man just after he heals him. This man didn't have a deal with the devil, not that we know of. His potential problem seems to be with himself. And now that he has been restored, whole and healthy, He has an opportunity to go in a completely different direction if he will. So Jesus confronts this man in a way unlike, read the four Gospels, unlike any other person that he ever deals with. He connects what we might call a poor outcome. Something even worse may happen to you 
with this man's bad behavior, behavior we don't have the backstory on. But we do have some of the story. Last Sunday, we visited this man by the pool of Bethesda, ultimately healed by Jesus. You can go back, listen to that talk. I'll give you a brief review. The man was waiting on those waters at Bethesda to be troubled, to bubble. And the sincere belief at the time was that if those waters were troubled and bubbling, then a healing angel had come down from heaven. And if you were the first one to jump in while the waters were still moving, you could be healed. So while waiting for an angel, Jesus shows up instead. And Jesus asked the man a simple question with what would appear to be an obvious answer. Would you like to be well? You would think he would answer, of course. But he says, I can't. And he begins to make the excuses that seem to be very well rehearsed about why his life can't be any different than it is. The man doesn't seem to want to be whole. He seems stuck, maybe even content with or at least used to having this problem And coming down to the pool of Bethesda every day was just a habit. Maybe he did it for the company. Maybe he's like the the drunk that shows up at AA. And he likes the company and he'll smoke a half a pack of cigarettes with everybody outside and drink very bad coffee. By the way, Garrett wanted me to tell you that there's the world's best mediocre coffee in the lobby today. He's been making it. If you don't like it, it's Garrett. But he says it's the world's best mediocre coffee. Make sure you get some before you leave. So maybe this alcoholic is smoking cigarettes and drinking the world's best mediocre coffee, and as soon as the meeting is over, he goes and has a drink. Because it's a habit, but not a habit that's bringing about a whole lot of change. I called it willful or learned helplessness. There's just nothing I can really do when in fact, There's plenty that could be done, if you're willing. When it comes to getting well, the man says, I can't. He used to tell my kids, can't, never, could, and won't, never, will. And that's what we're facing right here. And Jesus plows right over the protest, these feeble explanations. Verses 8 and 9, Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. And instantly, the man is healed. And what would seem like a happy and joyful end of the story should arrive, but it does not. This sets off a controversy, which Jesus was accustomed to. To the text again, verses 9 and 10. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. Now, there are some scholars and some commentators who believe that Jesus could have simply healed the man and told him to leave his stuff right there. That he tells the man to pick up that mat knowing it would upset the religious leaders. And so Jesus did this just to stick them in the eye with it. That's a pretty good, pretty good theory. That's what I would do. But thank the Lord, I'm not the Lord. This guy picks up his mat. 
And I don't think Jesus would use him as an object lesson. I think whatever he does, he does for this man intentionally. The man picks up this mat, and the religious leaders see it, and the first thing that they get concerned about is that he's carrying this mat on the Lord's day, and that's a violation of religious rules. Now this guy, how many years had he been laying there? 38 years? Four decades? I mean, he's a known commodity. They had seen him carried, dragged, or carted in every day for 38 years. It's no surprise his problem. And then suddenly, there he is, walking, running, clicking his heels. And the religious leaders don't say, Sweet Lord, it's a miracle! They say, What are you doing with that mat on your back? The established religious law of the time wouldn't let you work on the Sabbath. And work, if I could dive into the minutiae for just a minute, was defined a number of ways besides just carrying a sleeping mat. Number one, traveling more than 3,000 feet from your home on the Sabbath. Qualified as work. You couldn't do that. About a half a mile. Taking a bite of food larger than an olive. Small bite. Throwing an object into the air with one hand and catching it with another. Work. Can't do it. Writing or sending a correspondence of any type. Taking a bath. You know this is Saturday night, I better get my bath. Nothing could be bought, sold, washed, or repaired, including human beings. If someone was injured in some way on the Sabbath, they could not be made completely well, only given enough care to keep them alive until the next day rolled around. And of course, burden bearing. This included an object that weighed more than a dried fig or a liquid equaling one swallow of milk. Now imagine living your life with those kind of rules all the time about what you can and cannot do. And so for this guy to have this bedroll on his back was a religious crime, even if he was walking healthy and well for the first time in 40 years. The religious rulers were more concerned with keeping all of their rules than celebrating the restoration of a human being. And I wish that that kind of attitude was confined to this, that little sect of Jewish leaders while Jesus was alive, but it's not. There are people of all religious stripes even today more concerned about you keeping the proper rules and protocols than actually about getting well and getting healthy. You may have heard the story of the, the two Buddhist monks, and they come to this muddy river, and they're not allowed to touch a woman, to talk to a woman because of the vows that they have taken. And there's this woman standing there at the muddy river, and she's got this long, beautiful dress on, and she doesn't know how she's going to cross this muddy river without destroying this expensive dress. So one of the other monks just picks her up in his arms and carries her across the river, sets her down, keeps walking. Well, they walk on for the course of the day, and the whole time that they're walking, the other monk is just brooding in his mind. I can't believe he would do that. And finally, he can't take it anymore, and he says, hey, how could you pick that woman up when you know, you know it is forbidden for you to do that? 
And the first monk says, are you still carrying her around? Because I put her down hours ago. Right? Well, the religious leaders here, and most folks that get hung up in any type of rule keeping and legalism, are that second monk. So concerned with the rules that we can't see when people who are genuinely hurting, that they can be made well and be restored. That's what you have here. And so some do believe that Jesus intentionally sets this little contest off. But I think there's another reason why he tells this man to pick up that mat and walk. And it's that verse about stop sinning. Verse 14, after, afterward Jesus found him, the man who was healed in the temple, and told him, Now you are well, so stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. So Jesus knows something about this man that the rest of us aren't privy to because this is the only place he ever says anything like this to someone. Now real quickly, not only did primitive religion believe that angels stirred certain waters to bring healing, they also believed in something called lex talionis, the law of the talon, the rule of retaliation. It goes like this. People who suffer are those who have sinned. God directly punishes those who have done wrong. So if you suffer from a sickness or a disaster, a bankruptcy, a setback of any kind, that is your comeuppance. God did that to you. God has finally caught up with you and cut you down, you sinner. Now, this is patently untrue. And we know it's untrue in our own human experiences. And it's untrue along two corollaries. First, people who do the most God-awful things, the worst crimes, sometimes get away scot-free and never face judgment or retribution of any kind in this lifetime. And you know that's true. Right? And we know They don't deserve to prosper when they're crooks or killers or shysters or abusers. But sometimes they do. And two, some of the best, holiest, godliest, most loving and beautiful people inexplicably suffer from some of the hardest and most punishing circumstances. We know this too. And we know that people like this don't deserve all the pain that they are forced to deal with. Can I get an amen? Now, I don't wish pain and suffering on anyone most of the time. But sometimes there are people, they're good, they're good people. And I got a whole list in my mind right now. Some folks are going through the hardest of things. And surely they don't deserve it. And I don't wish pain and suffering on anybody. But sometimes when I'm talking to God and it's just me and God, I say something like this. Lord, if someone just has to suffer, I've got a list of folks who sure would deserve it more than this person over here. Now, I know I'm not by myself, right? Don't those thoughts cross your mind? How can this be? And there has to be some kind of cosmic God-ordained justice still to come one day to straighten all of this out. 
So there's not always this relationship between you did a bad thing and a bad thing has happened to you. You did a good thing, so nothing but good things are going to happen to you. That, it, we don't know. But sometimes, there is a direct relationship between action and consequences. Sometimes, Lex Talionis is excruciatingly true. Not because God is smiting people, my favorite King James word, smite. Not because God is smiting people or because God doesn't like you. It's simple cause and effect. It's action and reaction. It's reaping and sowing. It's the natural expected outcome of living dangerously. There's a silly old joke about the guy who goes to the doctor and he has two giant burns on the side of his cheeks. And the doctor says, oh my God, what happened? And the guy says, well, the phone rang and I answered the iron." And he said, well, what happened to the other side? And he says, they called back. Right? Consequences. God didn't cause that. That's a choice that a person made and they live with it. So when Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk, he was saying, you got to get out and away from here. You've got to change your habit. Stop coming back and visiting the places that have kept you just like you are. Get rid of that bedroll. Get rid of the temptation to sink back into death. Jesus warns this man, not because God was out to get him, but because of a single mistake somehow was going to send him careening into perdition, but because this man now had a chance at a whole and restored life. He had a chance to change. And this was Jesus' way of saying to him, don't blow it now. you got a clean slate. Don't waste this opportunity to do with your life all that could be done. Stop sinning. So you stop hurting yourself. It's always stumped me why Religious people, how do I say this carefully? Why religious people often make such a big deal about how offended God is over our sin. Yeah. I think God is big enough to handle it. And I think, as you read the New Testament... That God has gone to great lengths to forgive us of our sin. I think the problem is that God must be terribly hurt by the great lengths we will sometimes go to to burn our own lives to the ground. That has to hurt. Because God offers this life of grace and restoration and forgiveness and wholeness and embrace. And we go our own stubborn way and just light a match to all that is good. And it hurts us. And it hurts those around us. And surely it hurts the very heart of God. You know, God isn't our problem. The devil isn't our problem. What somebody else is doing 
is not your problem. Your biggest problem stares you in the face, in the mirror, every morning. And this is a story about dealing with that deal. The life that each of us live. Because we wake up every day with that clean slate to do the very best with our lives that God has given us. And it's an opportunity to be well and to be whole. And it's as if Jesus says to all of us, now stop the bad stuff and get on with living this life you've been given. Even Robert Johnson knew this. He said this in a song appropriately titled, Drunken Hearted Blues. I'm a drunken hearted man. My life, it's a misery. I'm a drunken hearted man. My life is a misery. If I could change my way of living, it would mean everything to me. I've been dogged and I've been driven ever since I left my mama's home. I've been dogged and I've been driven ever since I left my mother's home. I can't see the reason why I can't leave this no good trouble alone. That's a blue song. And that's the truth about the opportunity we all have to live in all that God has given and to give up our own stubbornness. You have been listening to Keeping the Faith, the podcast home of yours truly, Ronnie McBrayer. You can follow me on Facebook or Twitter, whatever your socialization preference may be. At Ronnie McBrayer will get you there in either case. Visit my website at ronniemcbrayer.org, and there you can stay up to date. On my speaking schedule, books I have written, projects just over the widening horizon, and yes, you can find out more about me than anyone truly wishes to know. Thanks to Shutterstock Incorporated, located in New York City's Empire State Building, no less. For producing and licensing my theme music, Bobby Rains provides recording and technical expertise. Tim Riles created the Keeping the Faith logo and artwork and land sunshine on my shoulder crow is credited with any and all photography and as always toby and mo the two small wonder dogs that run my home assisted with all editing i'm ronnie mcbrayer this has been keeping the faith and i thank you for listening